G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. We've got another fantastic guest for you today. For the past 45 years, Barry Mudge has been dedicated to both commercial and practical aspects of Australian agriculture. He's partnered his skill set developed through his own farming enterprise with his business acumen to deliver projects that focus on building resilience in farm businesses operating in a risky environment. This work has taken him across Australia as well as through constrained farming systems in North Africa and India. In his early career, Barry spent 12 years as a rural officer and regional manager for the Commonwealth Development Bank before moving home to manage the family farming property in the upper north of South Australia. Enjoy the chat. Barry, welcome to the GRDC podcast. Thanks, Ollie. I'm just worried about these two things there. Number one, the 45 years and being involved in agriculture. And the other thing is about this discussion about or acceptance of my business acumen. I'm not too sure either of those are, are something that I, I necessarily agree with. 45 years, I, I hate to have that number. It's right, but I hate to have that number up. Oh, you started when you were um, one year old. Yeah, well, that's right, exactly. <laughs> Perpetually 48. So, I mean, North Africa and India is a pretty interesting area to have travelled to. Have you, how many times have you travelled to those parts of the world? I've been done work in India about, about three trips there, but North Africa has been the one that, to a large extent, I've been incredibly lucky. I'm a... I've just always regarded myself as a farmer from up the road a bit, but I've just been involved with various projects and been incredibly lucky to have the opportunity to have gone into some of those countries. And North Africa has been was a, was a conservation ag project that the government was funding, Australian government was funding. North Africa is such an interesting area for Australia. We've been involved in projects in that area forever. In fact, when I was 21, I was supposed to be heading to Libya to work with a South Australian government-funded project in Libya. It fell through because at the time the boss of Libya, Colonel Gaddafi, was making a few bad noises. And I subsequently found that the place that we were going to was about 60 kilometres away from the largest terrorist training camp in the Middle East. So I was actually quite glad in the end that I didn't end up in, in Libya when I was 21 but anyhow, it doesn't matter. The North Africa, their farming system is so similar to our own. Obviously, it's a Mediterranean climate. You go there, you see the same weeds as what we've got, the same systems. There's one incredible big difference in that they're talking about five hectare farms. We're talking about 5,000 hectare farms. And their farming system is all about labour intensity and no capital, whereas ours obviously is capital intensive and low labour usages. But in terms of the agronomy, it's the same system except that they are probably, and I, I won't say that they're backward anyway, they're fantastic people, but their systems haven't necessarily evolved as as have because they've had a different set of pressures operating on them. So we were involved in a conservation ag project. We were sort of looking at direct drilling into, into country. We've already been through that revolution here in Australia. We know it works. And we're over there just working with the local researchers sort of perhaps overcome some of the barriers to the adoption of some of that technology. So I was going over there every a couple of times a year on that project and one wonderful experience to go over there and sit in paddocks with these researchers and farmers. So we were, we were operating predominantly in Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria with some of the, the local 
people. And that was a, it was a great experience. Very, very fortunate to have that experience. What did the, the travels teach you and shape your perspectives about the world out there? Well, I guess it was always good to come back to Australia. We're incredibly lucky here. But it's also about the thinking, the mentality about how people think through things. I, again, I, in Australia, I think we're, we're very fortunate to have a way of thinking here that does allow us to address our issues and our problems and generally have the capacity to do something about it. And when you go to these countries, you realise just how well we do it. One of the – just just one obvious thing. You go to and, – and I've done, say, in Morocco, we were looking at adopting, for example, the APSOM model here in Australia, you know, just this computer model that grows plants. And some of the ingredients into that there is the soil data, but a really important ingredient in that is climate data. Just to get hold of that climate data is a huge challenge in those countries. Whereas we could, at the push of the button, get every recording, whatever, for the last, as long as it's been recorded here in Australia, to get 100 years of climate data gives us enormous capacity to, to assess change and how things are working and whatever. You go over there, you're struggling to get any sort of that sort of data. So I guess that's just is part of that, how fortunate we are in Australia to be where we are and, and have the information available to us to enable us to make good decisions. So when you returned home, you talked at the beginning, you're just a farmer, but whereabouts is home for you? And has it always been that? I grew up on a, um, a small farm 250 kilometres north of Adelaide, a little place called Mambray Creek, Port Germain. It's halfway between Port Perry and Port Augusta. We sit up the top of one of the significant gulfs of South Australia. So we're, we're basically coastal, but we're 300 kilometres inland, if you like. And yeah, that's I grew up there on a, on a small farm. I, the farm was originally taken up, so I'm the fourth generation, originally taken up by my great-grandfather as a closer settlement block in 1878. And so we still have the original block my grandfather took up. So, and that, that legacy is really important to me as a person, what, you know, what they've done and, and how we can learn from what they've done, but how the system's evolved over that period of time is really an interesting sort of area. You know, we've all, they have gone through a heap of change, evol- evolution to end up to where we are now. We've continued to change and evolve and hopefully make the system better. I have very much a, a strong association or recognition of what the Aboriginals did to that country, how they, they came into it and they basically sat there for 40,000 years and got a living off that land without stuffing it up, done an enormous job. We've come in there, we have changed a lot of things. I'm not too sure that we've stuffed it up or not, but, we, but it's all about trying to make sure that it's still there to continue to farm. So this country that we farm is what we'd call uh, climatically challenged. Uh, you know, it's it's low rainfall country. It's you know, it's well outside. So this mythical, not mythical, this line that was drawn on the map map in eighteen seventy, eighteen sixty eight, or whenever it was, Goiter's line. This line that demarked the more reliable country with the less reliable country. We're certainly well outside that line. This is they stop farming just up the road. Basically, they go into pastoral country. So this is climatically challenged. It's a, it's a, but the reality is that my ancestors have all managed to raise a family, managed to pass the properties on to the next generation. It's all worked well enough. My father, small farm, 1,200 acres when I grew up, 500 hectares. In that, that environment, that's a small farm, although a lot, a lot of other farms are the same size. But he had a family of four, fed them, clothed them, sent them off, did the education bit and retired with money in the bank. So you'd say he was a successful farmer. And what we've tried to do is take that on. Obviously, we've expanded since then, but we've still got a small farm business but, you know, I've got a strong belief that 
scale isn't everything. You, you can be successful as a relatively small farm business. There is a critical level of scale, but it's all about being efficient with what you've got, making good decisions, or hopefully, and uh, and hopefully with a bit of luck down the track, you end up with a, in a situation where you can hold your head high and say, look, you know, and, and I'm really fortunate that I, I can now hand the hand the, the land on to the next generation for them to have a go at it. We can comfortably retire, uh, not want to retire as such, but we're still in a situation where we can quite adequately and successfully hand the hand the, the land on to the next generation and I sincerely hope that that occurs again down the track. So that's the ambition. And you haven't you haven't ventured too far from home in, in a lot of ways. You've had various jobs in agriculture over your career but you've always been involved in the farming business. Was that something that you always set out wanting to do from a young age? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've, I've always, from a young age... I remember pestering my father when I was 10 years old or something. Why? My brother is driving the tractor. Why can't I drive the tractor? <laughs> so uh, I promptly eventually gave in to me and I jumped on the tractor and turned too hard and broke the scarifier or something that we were using. So, yeah, that was just a typical example of me being a bit too enthusiastic. But, no, I've always loved my involvement. Whenever I've, I've worked away for a lot of years off and on, but it's always – the base was always the farm, always back there, seeding, harvest, busy times, it's always – I've always been intricately involved in the in the farm. That's been the, the first love. And some of those roles away from the farm, what was it that spurred you on down those different paths? Well, the first thing was, I mean, I went I went to um, Agricultural College, uh, Rosewood Agricultural College, did a four-year degree there. And uh, when I finished that, I spent a year or two just bumming around, basically working on properties, working at home, of course. But Dad it was never an option. Dad never gave me an option to come back full-time on the farm. The farm wasn't big enough. I was always going to go and get a job somewhere else. And I was very fortunate that a job came up as a specialist rural officer in the Commonwealth Development Bank, as it was then. So I was uh, lucky to get that job. And that was just a wonderful experience for 10, 12 years working with a team of brilliant people that mentored me incredibly well. And I learned an enormous amount about the financial side of agriculture doing that job, which was just a wonderful experience for a young lad. Did it give you plenty of grounding and, and ideas and an understanding of what was happening back at home and were you able to, to balance the two and work them together? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It was all about – so my job within the bank as a special rural officer was to – our lending criteria essentially was around prospects of success. It didn't matter. It wasn't a security lending, which is what most banks are. They just lend on security or with some sort of a – in those days almost cursory examination of cash flow, as was all about cash flow profitability – we had to be able to show that the business had prospects of success. Now, that mentality was very useful to me in our own farm business, to be able to take that mentality back to that farm business and say, what do we have to do to make sure this business is a viable business? And has that always been front of mind for you in terms of making the business decision it's got to make economic sense, not just down to... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, within reason. I mean, it, there's a lot of things we do that are done for things other than economics. But at the end of the day, our capitalist system relies on we can't run a business at a loss. We have we have to make money out of it, otherwise we won't be there. This is not a – and the other side of that, of course, is that nobody's put a gun to my head and told me to go farming. I've chosen that path and so it's up to me to make it a success. If I saw it, I didn't think it was capable of being success, then I'd be – well, I'd be the first to get out of it. So, again, it's, it's my chosen profession but I have to make a success of it. Otherwise, there's no point in being there. Got to get putting food on the table. Tell me, you were banking during the 80s, fairly challenging time for a lot of people. What was it like being in the seat as a banker? 
Early on, it was better. You know, we're sort of at the time we were talking uh, eight to ten percent interest rates. Then, towards the end of the eighties, we went into that period of ridiculously high interest rates. You know, eighteen, twenty, twenty-five percent, and that was just hard work. And also, we were in a, 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 some commodity price issues. It wasn't it? It was hard to make a quid out of agriculture, and we had some pretty ordinary years. And you put all that combination together, it was highly stressful. So, at the time, I'd moved out of Adelaide. I was looking after the – I was regional manager at Kadena at the time, a little bit up, up the road. And, yeah, it was just hard work dealing with these clients every day and they couldn't sit back on their laurels. If they did nothing for a year, they suddenly their debt was 20% more than what it was the year before. It was a, a very difficult period. Eventually, situation evolved within the banking game and I guess I became dissatisfied with the fact that the bank – Gen- banks generally weren't prepared to take their level of responsibility for some of the issues that were happening. They, they, they were expecting the, the clients to take the whole level of, of loss and responsibility, if you like, in a general sense. So I just found that a little bit hard to understand or hard, hard to accept. So I, And I was, always, I was always going to go farming at some stage. But I remember when I, in that period, that late 80s that I'm talking about, if I'd go along to the, the doctor and have my blood pressure tested, it was quite high. Six months after I left the bank and went farming, it just went back to a normal level. <laughs> it was just really interesting how how just that continuous stress level was just affecting me and it was just such a relief to get out of that. But but for all that, my experience in the bank was one that I just, I loved. It was a fantastically positive experience and loved the the interaction I had and it was just, yeah, say great, great learning experience and one that I look back with a lot of fondness. Tell me when you, you're working and helping your old man out on the side of these jobs full-time, then you get the chance to head back to the farm in a full-time capacity. What was it like coming back in? Was your old man ready to hand over the reins at that time? Or? Yeah, I was, I was very fortunate. With my father, he, he um, an opinion he said, he, right from the it said, if you want to do something, you go and do it. If you make a mistake, well, you'll just wear that. Uh, but you're always prepared to hand decision-making role over. So um, by the time I got back there, he was certainly, I once he never retired as such. He just kept on working on the farm eventually. But yeah, no, he was he was really good. So so it wasn't a difficult process at all for me to go back. I was extremely fortunate to have a father that was prepared to work with me and accept my role, which was at that stage became the manager and had been probably for some time, even though I couldn't put as much labour into it as I would have liked because I was working away. So when it became your real focus, the the other side jobs, and we'll touch on kind of your consulting areas and how that evolved, but were you purely just focused and staying on farm for those First number of years. Oh, I guess so. That was that. That was our role. That was that was. I mean, it was a really we it was a not I'd say a tough existence, but it was a, it was you know we had to make a quit out of this game. So the focus always was on improvement. I don't know whether it's the right phrase, but you know, describe myself as perpetually dissatisfied, always looking for change, always looking for how do we do this thing better. So that was in those those years, and, and ever since it was it's just always how do we what do we need to do to to make this thing work better, make better judgments, better decisions, evolve so that we are capable of long-term, I guess, viability. So that was that was always been the challenge and always looking for ways to doing that. On the perpetual dissatisfaction, does that make you a pessimist or an optimist? <laughs> Realist. <laughs> right in the middle. I think you have to be some level of perpetual dissatisfaction, otherwise you don't change. I mean, it's just... What you have to do to, to, to if you're comfortable sitting back in your laurels, I'm, I don't understand that. I don't say anyone can be that, but but you won't you won't evolve. You know, I, I regard 
farming is very similar to running a football team. I don't even pretend how to run an AFL football match. <laughs> football team, sorry. But, but it's a similar situation. If you sit back and do nothing for a while, you'll be at the end of the pack. Yep. And uh, all the strategy that goes into a getting a successful football team is very similar to the strategies that go into having a successful farm business. Could I, I want to ask a question on that. When you're, you're highly involved, and this is so hypothetical, but a lot of farming people are very just focused on their business and focusing in on that. By not getting out of your kind of area, you've got the blinkers on, does that hold a lot of farming businesses back without getting outside of their business and not necessarily that everyone needs to be consultants, but like in terms of people actually getting outside their wheelhouse to go and experience and be curious about other businesses and how they're working. Yeah, I guess a lot of businesses, most businesses now would have some level of external expertise helping them out, whether that's their their agronomist or other people. I mean, a lot of people now are running advisory boards and I think that's providing that role. I think if you haven't got that, then you do run that that danger that you you don't change, you don't evolve, you don't see the new ideas. So you don't, as I say, everybody has got capabilities in certain areas and if you haven't got a capability in certain areas, just find a way to overcome that. And that can be by bringing external expertise in. You don't have to go and do it yourself. Just bring something that, that can provide that. For you in, in terms of your specialty areas or areas that you've really focused in, climate variability is one of the big ones. Was that interest driven to you from operating at home or where did it come from? Essentially. I mean, we, we operate in a highly climatically variable area. It's climatically challenged, but it's variable. So yeah, very quickly I ident- identified, so, so, so in our environment, we can have the most magnificent years. We can be farming in some of the best country in Australia and the next year we're some of the worst country in Australia, depending on whether it rains or not. Essentially, one of our fortunate things is that most of our climate variability relates to rainfall. So we're essentially, we regard ourselves as frost-free, really difficult to manage frost. I mean, I, I'd, I'd hate to be in an area where you have frost issues. We've been very fortunate we don't have frost issues. So, but in rain, but rainfall, so very early on I identified that basically we had one good year in about five in 1978, and that was one that really brought it home to me. 1978, we had a wonderful year. The 100 of Baruta, where I farm was the highest yielding hundred in the state. Hundred, hundred is just a, a collection of, of a number of farms. So a hundred is just a, a land area for those who don't know. And Baruta, this this insignificant hundred in the upper north that's regarded outside Gordes Line was the highest yielding hundred in the state. That's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. We built beat all this fantastic land on York Peninsula in the southeast. And and I started to think then, this is the capabilities when things go right here are enormous. And so at the time, on our 1,200-acre farm that Dad had, he sowed 370 acres of wheat and we were at 470 tonnes. So he averaged 14 bags to the acre, 2.8 tonnes to the hectare. He'd never averaged, he'd never got to 2 tonnes of the hectare prior to that. He got to 1.8. He got 2.4 and he was laughing. And I said, why did we only grow 370 acres of wheat? Why didn't we have the whole farm planted wall to wall? So that sort of started a little bit of a... Oh, a progression for me to decide, right, how do we work out some of those years? How do we start picking some of those really good years, those one in five where we kill the pig, so to speak? How do we start trying to pick those and actually start 
adopting processes that we can pick those years, we're going to really try a bit harder in those years to make – yeah, so capitalising on the upside, I guess, and and if we think they're not there equally, when we have a really bad year, when we're looking at a really bad year, how do we sort of manage to limit the downside risk of that? So that was a bit of a journey that I've been on ever since, I guess. So you come up with that question, the, the hypothetical question you need to go and answer. How do you limit those risks? How did you set about answering that? Where did you begin to start to explore? Yeah. So it's really just a bit of a – Again, not lateral thinking at all. It's just a really obvious thing that you, there was, you could identify some of the ingredients that made up a good year. One of the ones that I started thinking about, and it was something that hadn't, I think, in a general sense, hadn't twigged in southern farming systems at the time. It's just starting to twig. But we used to always talk about plant available water, or, or sorry, soil water. That was a northern agriculture, northern Australia thing. You know, they'd, they'd store their summer, they'd saw their moisture and then they'd grow a crop on stored water. Southern farming, oh, yeah, when, you know, we talk about fallow a bit and whatever, but suddenly I started to see that whenever we'd had big summer rains or when we'd had after a wet year, we are starting to get better results. So soil water became a really important component of it. When we could plant early, we had a better chance of getting results. When the agronomy was right. So you started to say there's all these little things that are adding up to saying, yes, we can start, start to pick when we've got a fairly good chance. And the other thing was, using seasonal forecasts. At the time I was using a seasonal forecaster was giving me an indication of what the season was going to be. While I used him, he got it right 75% of the time. I don't know to this day whether that was luck or good judgment, but at the end of the day, I just incorporated all those things together and I just come up with an index that was just going to drive decision-making. So when the index was just a simple index out of 20 that had all these ingredients going, soil water, amount of seeding rain, time of the seeding opening, agronomy and the forecast, put it all together and if the, if the index was really high, you'd go for it. If the index was sort of mediocre, you'd, oh, you'd plant a normal amount and if the index was pretty low, you'd start saying, well, this is all about risk management. I'm just going to limit my risk, not plant a lot of country, run my livestock. And that worked, actually worked really well. Again, I don't know. So interestingly enough, when I took the forecast out of that, it didn't work. So the forecast was a really important part of it. As I say, the forecast was right 75% of the time. Then the forecaster went out of business and I struggled to find someone to replace it. And I probably have progressively lost faith in forecasting ever since because it really hasn't filled the bill. I haven't been able to find that forecast skill that I've been looking for, which is another interesting component. But now, I mean, soil water, everybody talks about soil water. It's just become an integral part of it. We still regard early seeding as absolute paramount in our environment. We know we're going to get a harsh finish. It's just part of what we do. So we have to get the crop in early. We have to get it maturing in cooler times. We can do that because we haven't got a frost risk. So there's all these things that that were integral to that cropping index that I had that are still being worked into our program, but, but I don't use that index now because I forecast component of it doesn't seem to work as well as it should do. And were you sharing that index further afield or were you just applying it in your business? Yeah, well, it was one of those really interesting, I was still talking myself a bit about how it, how it all worked. I, I was, I, I was telling people about it and it did get a little bit of publicity because there was a, one of the, one of the South Australian Labor premiers decided to get into the favour of the farming community and he got up at a farming conference one day and said, we're going to put out a $20,000 Award, we're going to call it the South Australian Farm Innovation Award, and through this, his advisor said, "Go and find some applicants, please." 
And of course they couldn't. <laughs> well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what happened. But anyway, about a month or two later, someone rang me up from a good friend of mine from Persia, rang me up and said, hey, you've got this, this index, haven't you? You should put that in the Innovation Award. And I said, oh. Anyhow, so this good friend put the thing together and put it in. And about three or four months later, I got this letter in the mail saying I just won the award. And that was the way the process worked. So, so that became a little bit of – I then took up a role within PERS or within Rural Solutions to extend some of that stuff. And, and uh, But we initially attracted some funding to do that and then that funding th- fell through. So it, it never was really publicised as much as it should have done. I did a heap of talks on it and whatever, but it wasn't – didn't go a long way. So, But that, again, I think the concept behind it is now – not because of that, but is now used very extensively about how we're now starting to – have more faith or otherwise in how the season might be going. The Mudge Index, I believe it was yeah, called, wasn't it? That's what I called it. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> On the top of the application. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> was that the, the beginning of you working more closely with research fields and, and areas or is that something that you've – Yeah, yeah, really... yeah. I guess I've worked pretty closely, certainly particularly with the Climate Applications Unit here in in Adelaide with Dr Peter Heyman was one of, is one of the main areas I've worked in. But I guess – I guess that climate has been a really important part of it, but I've always tried also to go broader than that. I think there's a, I think there's some really simple things that we can do to aid our decision making, judgments, whatever. So that's been part of the focus too. So I think one of the areas that we we really lack in agriculture in Australia is some good farm level farm economics 101, farm management 101. It's not taught very well in the in the university courses, there is the odd university around that does it. I mean, there used to be a fantastic agricultural economics unit at UNE, at the University of New England, but I think that's largely faded out. So, so this farm-level economics, which is relatively simple, is just not used and extended very well in the, in the system. And we have very few what we'd call farm economists or agricultural economists working in that applied, absolutely, you know, local farm application stuff. So I've sort of got into that a bit and tried to come up with relatively well, – I, I love simplicity. I, I think that's just the key to all this stuff. It has to be simple. It has to be able to be done. Bill Malcolm from University of Melbourne Uni talks about back of the envelope, anything that farmer can't do on the back of the envelope he won't adopt. So it's got to be simple. Now, I think that the mobile phone has largely replaced the back of the envelope. Anything we can do on a mobile phone, phone we'll, we'll accept and do. I think that's, that, and that's fine. That's good. It gives us a bit more capacity. But this farm-level economics is something that – and there are a number of things you can do to aid decision-making. So I'm not talking about sitting down in front of an Excel spreadsheet for hours on end punching in numbers. I'm talking about some simple stuff that you can do. You may not go all the way down the track to having a fully an analytical decision, but you've moved away from what we call – all decision-making is intuitive, but you're trying to get a little bit of conscious reasoning back into intuitive – intuitive decision-making. So that, that's been the process. So I've come up with a whole heap of what I regard as relatively simple things, analysis. I've certainly used them extensively on my own farm and, that, and I find them really useful. I was going to ask you, and it comes, well, I think we're going to come full circle back to some of the reports and pieces that you've written, but around that decision-making on farm, and I've seen it published in certain areas where you actually are using your real farm data and saying, this is where we were this year, this is where we were. Did you ever hesitate putting your facts and figures out in, into the world? Interesting question. No, no, I haven't actually. No, I don't care who 
I'm happy to use my farm as a, a guinea pig or a, a, a case study, if you like, and I don't care who sees my numbers. Yep. I'm not trying to hide anything or gild the lily or whatever. I'm, I'm, I know my farm intimately, as every farmer does. So if we can use our own farm as some sort of a case study, I'm quite happy to do that. Like, I don't, don't, I'm not trying to hide anything or, you know, whatever. Some people do get a bit precious about these things, but I don't. And in terms of off the back of that, so the, the, the report where I saw that was managing risk in an uncertain climate. So your, your big area that you've really focused on and have published quite an amount of work on is around climate variability and how that's affecting decisions at the farm gate. So were you exploring these topics and areas to help your own business or were you actually trying to take your learnings and your case study from your farming business and go, here's how we understand it? No, Ollie, I mean, it's always been how do I make better decisions on my farm? And if I'm happy to talk about that with other people, if they think that's of value, I'm not trying. I'm not doing this as a as a way, as a means to a, to get a job or something. It's just I've been fortunate enough to do enough training in that area to have some skill set allowed that allows me to do it, and I do it on my own farm. And if if I can then take that somewhere else, and if people find that useful, then that's like I, you know I'm quite happy to do that. I don't I'm not going to ram it down anybody's throat, but if it's of use for someone else, I'm quite happy to extend that and and have that discussion. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, like taking on problems in that sense where it's like you're actually going out, leaning into your own curiosities, asking questions that you've got a lot of passion and interest and intrigue that comes kind of behind it. You'd, you'd uncover some pretty incredible things when you chat with people, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, you do. And, and look, it's it's all people are bright. I mean, that some of the stuff that people come up with is wonderful stuff. So, you, And that's one of the great beauties of and one of the, Things I'm forever grateful for that, that I've, I've had that opportunity to have those discussions with people. Yeah, you know, some some really clever researchers and whatever. And I say, and sometimes you find yourself in a room with these really smart people. Just like, how good is this to be able to sit in this room and converse with these people and get ideas from them? And that, I guess that's been to me the the most enjoyable part of going broader away from the farm. That you have that interaction. That's a wonderful experience to be to be sitting there and say. Phew. I'm talking to that guy and we're learning heaps from him and I, I can hopefully can contribute to that discussion, sure. How lucky are you to be involved in that discussion process? And it's funny. Like I find that through the podcasting piece, you get these front row seats to people and be like, oh, actually, at the moment, Barry, I'm wondering about this, so I'm just going to get your two cents on it and just, yeah, different topics and areas and, and how it evolves. It's it's fascinating. Yep. Around your area, so how, how have you seen the effects of climate change over the past few decades on your business. That's a really interesting area, climate change. The one really obvious area is temperature and how that's changed and the really obvious result of that is that, you know, and I think the numbers show that we're one or one and a half degrees warmer than we were 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever. So I can, my real life example of that is that when I work for the bank here in Adelaide, I'd always take two weeks off at harvest and that would be the last two weeks of November. That would be our main harvest period. We are now almost never harvesting in the last two weeks of November. Our harvest comes at least two weeks earlier than that, at least. So we're harvesting in October and into November. The other other indicator of that is that when I used to do my water use efficiency calculation, my French Schultz, people who are sort of aware of that, when I used to work to about the 12th, the last effective rainfall date was about the 12th of October. After that, the crops had dried off too much. Now it's the end of September. So we've lost about two weeks of our growing season just because of temperature. It's not about when we've planted. It's not about the varieties. It's just that the temperature is finishing the crop 
two weeks earlier than it was. So we've had to respond to that. We have to now, the, the absolute focus is get the crop established at the very first opportunity it can be. So dry sowing is the go. You just have to get that crop out the ground whenever you can. So that's that's the one obvious area of change. Rainfall-wise, it's really hard to pick up a trend rainfall-wise. If we look at rainfall on our local recording station, which is Port Germain, we have rainfall records back to 1883. It's a really interesting sawtooth. When we look at growing season rainfall, uh, there was a real – it was quite good for a while. There's a very steady decline from about 1900 through to about 1940, 1945, steady decline. If you had been sitting there – Talking about climate change in 1945, you would have said, we're buggered. We are, it's just been, the, the rainfall has been, on average, on a running average, has been declining for 45 years. Then it suddenly turned around and went up for about the next 20 years, really climbed quite substantially, the, the running average. And then since about 1970, it's turned around and there's a steady run down and we're back to about where we were in 1945. What does all that mean? I've got no idea. Our record, unfortunately, only goes back to 1883. We can't go back further. What I do know is that we are using that moisture so much better than we were. There is some indication that summer rainfall has increased a little bit, but highly variable, but we're utilising, we're capturing summer rain, not capturing it better, we're using it, we're keeping it better. So we've developed the farming system around just every opportunity to maximise every drop's effect. So full summer weed control and all those sorts of things that we know about early sowing, trying to keep cover on country, all that stuff that that we know about now. So, so, So... I still, in terms of rainfall, climate change, the projections are less than enthusiastic in that regard. There's some expectation that we'll see some decline, but it's a wide, it's a wide range at the moment. We can't really say. So all we can do is continue to develop water use efficiency processes that allow us to utilise the rainfall as much as possible. The shortening growing season does concern me because we just got less time to capture the rain because that's the efficient time is to capture the rain during winter. We're trying to capture as much summer rain as we can, but it's really inefficient capturing summer rain because we just get so much evaporation. But So in winter, we've lost two weeks of our ability to capture rainfall. That's a problem. And is, is there anything that you're trialling in terms of management practices at the moment? There's always issues that we're confronted with. So, but, and they, it's always changed, always changed. So one of the big changes that we've implemented recently is is increasing so is initially the adoption of lentils into our program and now increasing the lentil area to the maximum we can and that was unheard of even first time I grew lentils which was about 15 years ago but the varietal changes have been such that they've now become a really important integral part of our thing we we always regarded them as too risky we now recognise that with the right practices, we can grow lentils in our environment. They actually are less risky than we thought they were, and the upside potential is enormous. So, so that's one of the adoption, one of the practices we've adopted quite extensively. We're having a everything. What always challenges thrown at us? One of the big challenges we have at the moment is crown rot. We're having a lot of problems, and so we're we're in a, an evolution system. How do we how do we adapt our system to be able to combat crown rot? So uh, there's always challenges, Ollie. That's just part of what we do. And you've worked quite closely with um, with various research institutions over the years. Is that is, is that something you were just drawn to? Uh, well, you can naturally get involved in that area if, you, if you're not. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I mean, working with GRDC has been great. Probably the most enjoyable. I've been heavily involved in the Upper North Farming Systems Group. I've been chair of that for a while, historically. I was, I was chair of that. But also just working some of the, some of the project stuff that they were doing. 
And one of the most enjoyable projects was the water use efficiency project that GRDC had, working with some really smart people like you know, the James Hunts and the John Kierkegaards and these sorts of people in that program was really, really interesting and one that I look back on with great fondness and I look at the the success of that project and wonder why we haven't had more initiatives along that line, which was all about here's the challenge. That was a really simple challenge. Improve your water use efficiency by 10% over, t- over five years. Great. Don't, don't care how you do it. Just do it. Yeah. Well, that's just, you know, you know here's, a, here's a heap of money to do it with. Well, bring it on. And <laughs> you know, no, that was just a – that was fantastic to be able – that approach would just allowed you to really explore where you had to go with, with any of this stuff. So that, that was one of my – favourite projects that I've been involved in. And then you've done other work through or alongside um, University of Adelaide and yep. down here at the Wake campus, but yep. in terms of working with Dr Peter Heyman as well, specifically the, the rapid climate decision analysis oh. tool, quite it. RCDA. I was going to say, we better make an acronym for yeah, it. No, it's an RCDA. <laughs> um, that's something that Peter and I have developed. I, it's a really simple process, but once again, we, it comes down to how do we capture some of the intuitive thought processes in a way that we can understand them better. And RCDA just does that. It's rapid climate decision analysis. It's just a really simple process of taking intuition a bit further down the track of analysis. And it works. I mean, I've I've used it on my own farm. It's not rocket science. It's just – but it's a a process that's – any change, I think – I love simplicity – so to adopt this process, it is a simple process, but it's not necessarily easy to do because it does involve budgeting. It pops, often involves sitting down in front of an Excel spreadsheet. Farmers don't do that very well. So we have to sort of work out how we can do that. I said before, anything that farmers are going to adopt, back of the envelope or mobile phones. So I think we have to somehow put mobile phones in there somehow as a, as a way of adopting some of these processes. All the RCDA does is essentially take it away from the concept where so often we think about decision-making as or think about where we're trying to go as some sort of a point in the future, all RCDA does is look at it as a range. Try to think about a decision as a range of potential futures. Bill Malcolm would say, imagining the future with rigour, Bill Malcolm. So all that's what we're trying to do, imagine the future with rigour, which essentially is looking at a range of possibilities and then saying, well, What's the implication to that in terms of the upside and the downside? It's what we do every day in decision-making. We do that, but this is just a structured process of how to do it. That's all it is. And when you apply it, I've found invariably it changes your understanding of the decision question. So that's the important thing about it. I'm perpetually surprised at how much it changes. You think of something and you do this stuff. Gee, I didn't didn't think it would work out like that. So that's – it's just about a a decision process – provides some sort of perhaps we'll call it decision hygiene or something like that on just understanding the process a bit better. It's not rocket science. Is that a piece which really flows into your consulting business and area of interest there is around how do you simplify decision-making? Yep, absolutely. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. So there's this old line about uh, simplicity at the far side of complexity, you know, how that's how important simplicity at the far side of complexity is versus simplicity on the near side of complexity. And uh, so you can have this really really complicated system, but make sure the analysis of that is is relatively simple so that you can sort of pull in some of those some of those processes to help with the decision question, judgment or whatever you want to call it. There's a question, and I know you love uh, 
Love uncertainty. If you had a magic wand, yep. you've alluded to a few different things, but you could fix one thing in farm businesses today, what would you wave and wish for with that magic wand? I think this area of just of an, a little bit more understanding of your farm business. Again, this, this farm management 101, I think that would be a really good exercise if people prepared to, could go down that process a little bit more. Some people do it well, but a lot of people don't. So that would be the area, just to understand the processes a bit more. What's the profit drivers? So GRDC came up with this really good, I'll call it a framework or whatever, around profit drivers. They extensively advertise that and I think it's gone down reasonably well, but that's essentially the – I think that's a really useful thing and just understand the, what's giving you and how you need to evolve those things all the time. I did the most interesting – we were chatting about universities and things before, but I did the most interesting subject at uni and it was grain marketing, but it was – should have just been called business marketing – Everything was based off just understanding the costs. What are the cost drivers in your business? And then, which is really eye-opening because I guess once you understand that, then you can understand your decision-making off of it. Everything else flows off where your costs are sitting. Yeah. Grain marketing, I find that really, and a really interesting subject. And I, I've thought about it extensively and I think there should be a way I can come up because I think most farmers would say that's probably one of the most difficult decisions they have because it just it comes home to bite us so often and yet I, I haven't been able to come up with a scheme that works in that regard. I, I have. I've, I think strategy always beats tactics. And so, so the, the strategy, which the diversification strategy, sell in small parties in different ways and across time. That seems to be about the only strategy I can come up with that, that works. You're going to always get caught, but you'll have a few wins along the way and hopefully it all averages out. <laughs> but I've given a lot of thought to how we could come up with some sort of a, an index or something. But I, I describe grain prices as the loose cannon. You've got no idea where they're going. And anybody that says they do, they do, all the mistakes I've made over the years of grain marketing, grain selling, is when I take notice of what people, some people think, that they know where it's going. You don't. Something will happen. Ukraine will be invaded by Russia. I mean, you know, like you, you don't know these things. No. Nobody does. Everything that everybody knows about a market is built into the market. You'll never get a jump on the market. So just accept that, accept it's a loose cannon and then to develop a strategy around that. I like that. Strategies beat tactics. Strategies beat tactics. So 45 years involved in agriculture, what is it that's keeping you working in it? Oh, I just love it. I mean, it's, and I, I mean, I guess at the moment the real enjoyment is handing the, the property onto the next generation. Really, um, my son's. My son and daughter are vitally involved in the uh, the property. My son's going to take over the management of it or is in the process of doing that and that's a wonderful experience to be involved in. So that's, I guess, given me the, the buzz. I'm, I'm, um, I'm slowly stepping back and resuming more of a mentoring role. That's, I say I'm slowly stepping back. I seem to still have a heck of a lot to do. So I'm not, I'm not stepping back, but, uh, yeah, I'm certainly handing the decision-making role over and, and becoming the mentor and that's just a wonderful situation to be in. And at the same time, try to still work in the industry and, and if people are interested in some of my observations or, you know, if I can add any value anywhere, I'm happy to do that and I'm certainly uh, enjoying that part of it where we can. Well, congratulations and good luck to you guys going through that and whatever's next for you. But before we go, Barry, yep. the Fast Five. Oh, the Fast Five. I feel like I need theme music for it. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite grain-based dish? Lentil dal. Who would be three people you'd be inviting around for lentil dal? Oh, it'd be three people. One of them would be Daniel Kahneman. Just wrote this wonderful book on, uh, on decision-making or how the mind works. 
Another one probably from political base would be Malcolm Turnbull because I've always regarded him as a smart man. I just don't know why. No, I, won't, I won't go any further on the politicus, but I reckon he'd be a really interesting man to have. The third I'm just struggling with at the moment, um, someone from overseas who, oh, well, he's dead now, but Peter Ustinov, unfortunately, he can't turn up, but we'll, we'll assume he can, assuming from the, from the grave or whatever. What was your first job? My first job was lumping bags of wheat in uh, for a neighbour. Uh, he couldn't lump them in, so this, these were these would have been the old three butchel bags, 180 pound bags, and uh, put them on the back and lump them in. And bags never been the same since I was about 15 at the time. I earned uh, 20 dollars for the day's work. It's pretty significant at the time. Oh yeah, make the most of it. Mm. Something on your bucket list? It's probably travel, like everybody. Yeah, it's just probably travel. I mean, I, I've been probably the most. What I'd love to do is go back to a North African country, would be Morocco or Tunisia, and just spend a year work sitting in that landscape and just working with the people just on a one-to-one basis. That would be that would be my bucket list. Yep, that'd be bloody cool. What's a question you have for a future po- guest on this podcast series? The business component of farming and and how how can we in in a in a, in a realistic way we've got so much opportunity out there to do things better how can we do them better what's holding us back from adopting systems that allow us to make better decisions so, yeah, we, we have all these decision support systems that are never adopted really well-meaning people have, adopt, have built these things and yet we don't use them what's holding us back why don't we why don't we adopt better systems is that just human nature or is it is there something some gap there that we haven't found i like that I'll, uh, I'll look forward to asking someone and circling back to you when I've got an answer. Okay. <laughs> well, Barry, thank you so much for sitting down for and having a chat with us and good luck with the growing season and how it eventuates this year. Fingers crossed it's another good one for you guys. It'll be what it'll be and we'll take whatever comes and uh, yeah, make the most of it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.